We've been looking at this series, this Summer in the Psalms, and specifically Summer in the Songs of Ascent, 15 Psalms, 120 to 135, um, that are uh, written to be recited, sung, and the theme of them is the pilgrimages from uh, wherever Israelites lived to the holy city, up to Zion, and up to the temple. There were certain festivals, three in particular, that, the, that in the law that all people are supposed to come to the tabernacle, wherever it is. It used to be mobile, and by the time this is written, uh, Israel is a well-worn-in country. They've been there a long time. David is now more, he's an ancestor memory. He's long gone. And this, the temple that was, or the tabernacle that was a mobile tent is now a very permanent temple. And people would come from all over to come and worship the Lord. Uh, and as they went, they would sing these songs. And so there are these, these beautiful songs of going from where we are to a meeting place that God has set up. And so even though none of us, well, I don't know, maybe some of you are going to Jerusalem in the next year or so. Uh, I can't afford it. But even though we're not doing that, we still go from where we are to where God has called us to gather together or to, to go be with him. And so it's this, it is an ascent when we go to be with the Lord, and these psalms are really uh, illuminating in that sense. Now, I will tell you, um, I'm jumping around a bit uh, in this series. Last week, we looked at, like, our pilgrim had arrived, and he was having a meal. We're going to go back in time to his arrival at the city, and I know that might be confusing, but that's actually how how Hebrews tell stories. It's it's nonlinear, so I'm on theme, okay? I'm trying to help you understand. So, um, we're jumping around a bit. You know, years ago, before Elaine and I became just lame parents, we were cool. And I was flipping through old photos the other day on my, on my uh, I found my, my Google photos, which is in my old phone, so I'm flipping through, and I'm like, man, our apartment was like trendy and cool. It wasn't covered in chicken nuggets and had high chairs everywhere. And, and this is the era I'm talking about. We were cool, and we went to Europe. And we were there, and it was an amazing time because... Europe has a very different history than us, very old. You know, I mean, the people here, like our history, like there's, there's still burn marks you can see when the first settlers came here in the bark. That is not very long ago. If you can leave burn marks with ropes and we can still go look at it, this is a pretty recent area. Europe, not so much. Their history has history. We were in London, and you think of London as being an old city, a very old city. And you get there and you find out that it's actually built on an even older city, a Roman settlement called Londinium, where London gets its name. And we went uh, in the tube, which is this the cutest, quaint little British name for a subway you've ever heard in your life. Like, honestly, Britain is the most quaint country in the world. They're like, it's like a nation of tall hobbits. And so they can't call, they can't call it the subway, the under, like, I guess they, they will call it the underground, but the tube. You come out of the tube and, and, and see... And when you come out of the station, you're just greeted by this enormous uh, old wall. And I got a picture of it here. That is the ancient Roman wall of Londinium. And it's just, it's just sitting there, and no one's guarding it, except for a little plaque that says, uh, you know, this is, an old, uh, this is an old thing. Don't touch it. And I th- like, we're Americans. The rules don't apply to us in Europe, right? And we saved them in World War II. Uh, I'm kidding. We did touch it, though. But as you can see, we touched it very softly. Uh, so there's Elena, just a gentle, a gentle grazing of the, of the Roman wall. But I'm telling you, being there and seeing it, and you're taken by surprise. I think I had heard that Londinium was there first. I, I think I knew that at that point. I didn't know anything was left. I didn't know that. So you come out and you see it, 
and, and you're just shocked. And for a moment, you feel transported back. And, and uh, I, too, touched it. I actually sat on it uh, for a brief moment. Uh, we didn't get caught. I still think Scotland Yard's hunting us down. Um, but I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> but uh, there was just this weird sense of like, you felt it, and like at some point, someone's hands touched us and put this in here from so long ago. So many things happened here. They, they had raids from the Celts they held off here. They had goods that came in uh, that probably shipped out of Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion. Londinium is that old, and they had things that came from that region. I mean, there's so much history there, and it takes you by surprise, and it feels like the closest uh, you'll ever get to time travel. And I've heard uh, of people talking about this, of places of hallowed history, of things they've connected with, people that have gone to maybe Auschwitz and have seen the, the, uh, the internment camps and the death camps, people that have gone to Civil War battlefields. And these places are changed by what's there. It's, it's a hallowed space that is uh, it's different in, in how we experience it in the spirit that we can feel that difference. And so with that in mind, I want to read the first two verses of Psalms 122. And um, at this point, our, our pilgrim is arriving at the city. I rejoice with those, he says. I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. In the original language, there's this sense of, of exuberance, of, of surprise, of shock, of almost like I can't believe I am here. They've finally come to the city they've been looking forward to. And, and one of the things I think is a question we got to ask about this passage and really about all of the pilgrimage is why a pilgrimage at all? If God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, including the homes that they left, and he's all-powerful everywhere, just as powerful in their fields as he was in the temple, why go at all? Sacred places has become something of a, an uncomfortable topic. You know, we, it's something we don't know what to make of, the, of an idea of sacred space. Is there, is there such thing as a, as a place being uh, hallowed or, or sacred or something worth going to? Uh, it's, it's in the Protestant world, anyway, Catholics are very easy with that. <laughs> but uh, we, we kind of wonder, is that a real thing? And I must say that while it's vague to a lot of us to understand it, to the Bible it's not very vague because both the Old Testament and the New Testament are dripping with the concept of sacred places in space. That it is a very uh, profound and real thing that sacred space is very much real. In the Old Testament, you had Eden, you had Sinai, you had the tabernacle, the promised land. All of these were sacred and hallowed spaces. I mean, even to the point to where when Joshua crosses into the promised land for the first time, they cross the river, they're confronted with an angel that guards the way. Because that section of land, before it was ever settled, was sacred and awaiting its calling. The people were called and the land was called to host a purpose, and it was sacred. In the New Testament, there's sacred spaces of the manger and the things that happen there, the Mount of Transfiguration, Calvary, all of them hallowed spaces. Sacred space and sacred places are places that God has set aside where he has done his work or is going to do his work. God has long blessed houses of worship as a special place. I hear stories um, 
of things that have happened in, in students' life that were once in youth group, trauma that happens, and in the middle of the night, they drive here to the parking lot because of a sense of protection that they feel. God has blessed houses of worship. There's this um, misconstrued concept that when Christianity started, it was just people in houses. We say that a lot. And actually, if you really look at the history, it doesn't play out as that way as we think. It's a little more complicated than that. Just like... Um, the synagogue had its structure. We have to remember that when Christianity started, it wasn't this fresh religion. They're trying to figure things out like, well, should we have like songs or a teaching? Do we listen to one person speak? How do we do this? They knew. They had a system. They had a structure they were familiar with. Churches are very much like Reformed synagogues. They had a house of worship. And in fact, if you look at the way that they structured, you can find charters of churches that are in the first century, back when Christianity wasn't a legal religion yet. See, Rome had this system where they had to keep the Romans happy and say, we only have one religion, and it's the Roman religion, which was actually the Greek religion with the new names, but that doesn't matter. There was the Roman religion, and it was the state religion. But they knew they couldn't keep people happy that way, so they had all these goofy ways of getting around it. They would say, you can charter as a group that patrons that deity. So you celebrate the deity, but you're not a religious entity. Wink, wink, and then you could go by your space. And so you can find there's, there's old charters of churches that are in Ephesus and Jerusalem and all these places that Rome recognized and said, you're like the Jesus club and that's your building and you can do your stuff over there. And it was their way of keeping peace. We find out that churches immediately bought spaces. They met in those spaces. And when they met in homes, they were often meeting with patrons that took their homes and converted them to public spaces. And most of them had this large colonnade in the middle, and they would have all these people come in. It'd be, we would see it, and it would look like an outdoor church service. And I say all this to say this. God waited no time to create sacred space for the church, a place to go for people to gather, because it was an ancient thing, this special place, where people would come from all over the community to come to one place to worship God. And it is a sacred and important thing. So I would say, yes, this room is sacred. This, this room is more sacred than the produce section at Fred Meyer. God will speak to you in the produce section at Fred Meyer. I believe that. But in this space is a space that is dedicated to the purpose of worshiping God. In the seat you're sitting in, someone's heard from God at some point in their life that transformed their life. People have um, come to this church and have had relationships and growth and things that God did to them here that has changed the destiny of them and their kids and everybody that comes after them. We recognize that sacred space is very important, though we don't worship it. In a few months, we're going to rip this carpet out of here. And it's probably going to get burned, and it doesn't matter. There have been people who have cried on this carpet, and, that's, and, and, and there's been special things that have happened in this place. This carpet's going to burn. And it looks terrible right now, and I, I apologize for it. We're working on that. Um, we don't worship it, but we realize that the God worthy of worship is what made it sacred through his work, that it is a place dedicated to him. He is holy, and his workplace is sacred. And so he arrives, our pilgrim, at the city at its gates, and he is uh, deeply moved, almost in disbelief that his feet are finally standing in the city gate. And not that he hasn't been here before. Most pious people who made the pilgrimage did it three times a year. So it'd be more of almost the feeling you get when you 
Maybe you're going to see someone you're familiar with, and you're looking so forward to seeing them. You haven't seen them so long, and when you finally see them face to face, there's this unbelief of like, the moment's finally here that I've anticipated. Or you go on vacation to that same place you've gone to before, and and it's been prep, and it's been taking time off, and all the difficult stuff to get on vacation, and then you get there, and you you just are in awe. I can't believe I'm here. And though the city's imperfect, and though the journey's imperfect. To this pilgrim in that moment, it's beyond perfect, is disbelief. And there's a great hustle and bustle about the scene that he comes into. Verse 3 and 4 says, Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. This city, tightly bound, has got some really deep, rich language behind it. It's, the, uh, it's a term for, for, tight, for tightly wrapping something together, braiding, sashing, tying it securely. It's the exact same term that was used in building of the tabernacle for the ropes that would hold the tent down. It's an idea of being tightly bound and wrapped together for security, for the securement of the tabernacle, for the securement of the city, and it's tightly bound. Bound together meant stability for this city. It was, uh, for a lot of these people, they're leaving places that are more rural. They're leaving places that are open. Jerusalem is walled. It is fortified. It is compacted. And there is protection in that place. There's city guard in that place. There's law in that place. And it's all virtue of how tightly packed it is as a defensive location. And it can mean safety. It can also mean it's tense at times because everyone has to fit into that tiny wall. Sometimes I forget how small ancient Jerusalem is. In the time of Jesus, they built new walls, the Romans did. But ancient Jerusalem was so small that it was not much wider than Proctor and Pioneer Boulevard. And if it started at Shell, it would end before you get up to about the Arco at the end of town. And about 500,000 people packed into there for a festival. This is a crammed location. They're tightly compacted, safe, but it means it's tense at times. God desired that his people would be together, wrapped together and inseparable, but that can also mean tense. I've heard someone give advice about boundaries. They said, if you have an issue with a family member or something or a friend, you, you're really left with two options, distance or a hard conversation. You either decide you're going to tell them, I, if we're going to continue spending time together, I'm not, I, I won't. I won't be spoken to like that. If you're going to speak to me like that, I'm going to go. Or you just go. You just think, ah, I don't really need that cousin, or I don't need that friend, and you just stop talking to them. And so distance can be very effective, but it's also destructive. God does not desire us to have distance, but to be tightly compacted together to where we are going to have to confront things because we're always going to be tied in. Tight as a rope can get us to the person next to us. When we read the law... And it speaks of these edicts that, that call for this whole series we're reading of the pilgrimages, several festivals where it said, all of Israel, you are to come to the tabernacle and to worship. When you read it, you get the context that it's one of two things. One, they are worshiping at the tabernacle. They're making their sacrifice at the temple of the Lord. But the biggest thing was for the whole community, the whole nation to come together again like they were in the desert, to live in one place for a short amount of time, to be refortified in who they are, what they believe, what it means to be Israelite, and they return home. So three times a year, it is, yes, about worshiping at the tabernacle, but it's greatly about coming together. 
pilgrims came to the temple, but he came to be at the temple, but he's also come to be with the people of God, packed in tight. It sounds stressful to me. I, we, we went to Oktoberfest last year. They called, all the events last year, they called revenge events. Did you go to any of those? After COVID, everybody was like, we're all going. And I'm not kidding. I've never been in an environment like this. I've been in Disneyland when it's closing, and I had more elbow room there. It was, there was a stroller, and you would move like this, and like people, strangers are touching your body the whole time. It was packed everywhere. We left. Like, this isn't fun. I, I don't even want to wear a later hose, and we're getting out of here. It was, it's just, this sounds like a stressful event to be at. But it's important all the same. You know, church is just as much about getting together and worshiping God, taking time out of our week to go somewhere to praise him, as much as it is to go and be tightly bound with other people for an amount of time. That we could have it reaffirmed to us who we are in the ancient institution that we are part of. That, I mean, before the church, people would come together in Israel to worship the Lord. In the time of the church, people would come together across the city to worship the Lord. And it meant uncomfortable. It meant tight quarters. It meant fights. It meant arguments. It meant issues that you had to resolve because your tent was going to be touching theirs tonight when everybody went to bed. But it meant something. The church grew just as Israel grew from the tension and having to work things out having to remain and to get things straightened out. Just because they, you, you can come to church or be part of it and there's tension doesn't mean that it failed or that you failed or that it's not for you. Perhaps we can find safety for ourselves out in a field all on our own. You can put on your own worship. You can listen to your own podcasts. But it's not the same as being bound together. It's not an either-or kind of thing. You're meant to have a very personal and individual relationship with God, and you're also meant to have a relationship that is tied to a community that gathers for a purpose, and you can't replace them. One does not exchange for the other. Church isn't meant to be uh, as loose and as comfortable as a private devotional life. It, It has some tension that comes with it, but that tension is part of the thing that makes us grow. Like the pilgrim, our whole journey is worship. We kind of wonder what is worship. Did, did, was worship what we just finished? Brad's led us in, was it five, six songs? Five? Yes, five songs. Brad knows. Was that worship? And what is this now, the sermon? And what, what, what really constitutes worship? Uh, growing up evangelical, worship basically means singing. I say the same thing. It's like, to me, it's the same thing. Worship music, and, and that's been fused in my mind to a point that it's hard for me to remember Worship is everything you do for God. Absolutely everything. It's not just singing and hearing a word being taught. It's also dying to yourself and serving. That for our Sunday school teachers that weren't able to sing with us this morning, they're not able to, to read with us this morning this passage, they are still worshiping as they serve those kids. It's also in, it's enduring the tension, enduring the repetitive and boring conversation that you're having. Because God loves the person who's speaking to you, and they're worth something. All you do for God today is worship because you got up this morning and you came here. It was all about your relationship with God. This is a worshipful moment. Even you sitting there quiet and being respectful is a worshipful moment. Everything that we are doing is worship, and that is a special thing that happens when we come together. 
Enduring tension is worship. And that kind of true worship only happens when we come together and we're tightly bound. As one group, that special experience. In verse 5, he says something that almost seems uh, out of place, but it's not. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. This tells a complete story of what it is to come into the house of God, because for Israelites, it was a time to remember. David's gone, and they've had good kings, and they've had bad kings, but when they come in there, they can see the tower that he built. They can see the throne that he would sit on by the city gate. That's where he would dispense justice. He was the Supreme Court. When no one else could decide a decision, it comes to the high king, one of their high, highest priorities and responsibilities. When they go there, they're reminded of their heritage and, their, and of their calling. And it's why when the kingdom split, the kingdom, the, the, everyone that left uh, Israel's proper kings feared the return because they didn't want them to go to Jerusalem. They didn't want them to be stirred with almost what you could consider a Jewish patriotism, the sense of belonging to the community. So they built temples elsewhere to keep them away because going there reminded them of their heritage, who they were, who they belonged to. I have this interesting experience. Every time I get together with Foursquare, I'm super glad I'm Foursquare. I love our denomination. I'm not even going to hide it a little bit. I love those guys. I, when I was in Bible college, we did all these different mixing things, and it was certain mega churches and different stuff, and there was just some times you'd leave a conference kind of vexed, like, was that about the display? Was it about the show of it? And you just had troubles? I would go to a Foursquare some, to event, and it would just fill me up because we have a beautiful culture in our denomination that it's not about the flash, and it's not about the, 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 the new things and the, and the fun uh, I mean, fun is great, but I mean, it's not about the flash. It's not about the style. It's a denomination that's fixated on remembering people and the God who loves them. We see people. We, we care about them. And it's something that every time I go, I feel encouraged about. We have great leaders who don't miss the calling of God on people's lives. Not obsessed with numbers or flash, but God and the people. And I love it. I feel encouraged by it. And I'll tell you, it's not just our denomination. The Christian church has an amazing story and does great things. And I'm a little bit tired of pretending that it doesn't. There's so much that we say all the time of the church has got flaws and has to be fixed. And, and, and I'm not saying there aren't flaws and things that need to be corrected and healed. Mistakes that were made in history. But the story is too great to let it end there. We have done great things. Things that we belong to. Things that if we don't gather together and remember them, we could lose them and lose a sense of who we are. I remember things like John Knox, a Scottish pastor who, he was the one who founded the, just the concept of public education. Scotland was the first place to have broad, open public um, education for people of all wealth levels. It was paid for by the state. And the reason was he wanted every Scottish child, whether they were rich or poor, to be able to read and write so they could read the Bible. That was his purpose. This was transformative. An enormous difference because up until then, it was the elite and it was the wealthy that controlled written knowledge. And it was the church that broke that and started a culture of being very different. And it came from people once called barbarians that were transformed by the power of the gospel. I think about Mother Teresa and the fact that we get a claim that we're part of a movement that she started as well. That she worked with the poor and the destitute in such a way that it's second only to Christ. 
They, they had people that would come in with Hansen's disease. We call it leprosy often, but it's Hansen's disease where it's, it's, it can be very contagious, the pustules, the skin, the infections. And the nurses would, would clean them at a distance. And Mother Teresa said, that's not how you do it. And they thought they were going to show them a better way to add clay pots, like broken clay pots is all they had, and, and they, would, they would scrape the wounds with it. And she would take them and cradle them like a child. This woman who had no children, they were all her children. She would cradle them like a child and hold them really close and clean them. And it's this, it, she was an incredible woman, and she's part of our movement. Billy Graham spoke truth in such a way that cities were brought to tears, and generations were reconciled to God. When, I remember when Katrina hit, we got a call from someone who used to be in our youth group that said, nobody's coming anymore. It was a year after the storm hit. Everybody had kind of forgotten. Remember when it first hit, there was like celebrities. They wanted to make sure everyone saw them like walking in the water, pulling boats. It was a big deal. Everybody went. But a year later, nobody was going. And so they called up and they said, nobody's coming here except for churches. And so they're asking us to call churches to see if they'll just keep sending people. And so our youth group went. I was, in, I was just a, in high school at the time. I just signed up and went raised money at the funder, fundraiser, and we went to um, Gulfport, Mississippi. And when you get there, Walmart was open, Home Depot was open, and every home was abandoned, and nobody was helping. It was shocking. The, the few people that were back were buying stuff in, in Walmart for their daily necessities. Home Depot was busy as heck from the few people that are trying to rebuild their destroyed homes. Insurances were completely inundated with claims, trying to fight every single one, and so it was a largely abandoned city. And it was literally only churches that were going. What I find is that Christians remain involved in tragedy to a level uncommon to the world because we don't serve as long as the world is watching. We serve as long as uh, heaven is watching. Christians continue to go, and, that, and the gulf would be in a far worse place if it wasn't for the dedication of Christians in this country. People rag on Christian Americans all the time, but there is beauty there. Just because the church has blemishes, doesn't mean it's something that we should be ashamed of or hate her because she is the bride of Christ. And it's worth belonging to and having some pride and some connection with it. We should never let an outsider define who we are on the inside. And there's people that say, that's oh, full of hypocrisy. And, and, and it's so dangerous and it's so toxic. And I'm wondering, what are they basing that on? Have they come in these doors? Because I've met you people. I know you. And I'm proud to be part of this church with you. This is a good and healthy church. And I don't know what people are talking about with this, uh, that it's so dangerous and so terrible. I'm proud to call you my own. And like the pilgrim, we too, when we come together, we find that we're no longer small in our own eyes. But we have something in common with all the pilgrims wandering on God's earth looking for him. And we have a great story and a great connection. Let us not say that this isn't sacred, that it's not powerful, or that we can have church on our own, or that church is just about a thing that boosts me up or lifts me up, because even under tension, it's still good for us. I heard a phrase that's haunted me ever since I heard it, that too many, um, and here I'm like, churches are, shouldn't be criticized, and here I go, <laughs> that someone said that too many churches go for what they call a deistic therapeutic moralism. Think about that phrase, deistic, therapeutic, moralism. Deistic, it has to do with God. Therapeutic, it's meant to make you better and happier in the week, and it's got some sort of moral teaching. And that that should be what we focus on in some circles, or that it's criticized that that's what it's focused on. 
But church isn't just there to lift us up. There's something more deep and ancient in it. Yes, it does. I find it does often. But on the days that it still drains you and it's difficult and it's not easy, God designed it with some tension inside of it to remain and to belong. And its value goes beyond um, simply boosting us up. I would hope that we could change to praying for the flourishing of Christ's bride for his church for it to, to be rich and healthy from the inside out. Such a prayer is uttered for the city of Jerusalem. He finishes his psalm of ascent as he in the gates saying this, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who you love be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and for my friends, I will say, peace be within you. And for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Christ's church has blessed us. And I'd hope that we could bless it also with prayer. Prayer is not just a, is not saying, uh, may judgment befall you for the things that you've done wrong. Or may you face what all that you've destroyed in this world. A Christian prayer for the church is peace be within you within from the inside out just as jesus said it's what comes out of you that defiles you that we would pray that the heart of the church would reflect more and more of the savior that it follows that it would be corrected that it would be guided that it would move and that it would grow and that their members of it wouldn't forget its incredible beauty the lord brings peace and he brings holiness and he brings growth to the church we would pray this not just for Living Way Fellowship, but for the global church that we are part of, God's community. And that we would feel a deep sense of, of belonging and a deep calling that it is worth it to go, to gather from wherever we are, to go to a house of worship and to praise the Lord. To belong with a profound respect of what it is and what it means to gather in his name. That this is a meaningful thing a powerful thing and an ancient thing that will not varnish and go away. Lord, today I ask that you would move in our hearts to, and convict us and even heal us. God, I pray that we would feel the excitement that if we have allowed church to be a thing in our mind that has become a, a deprioritization, if it's become something that has been a burden, that we would feel some excitement right now if that is something worth being part of that it means something to be here, even when I leave and I don't feel quite as lifted up as I feel like. It is worth it to be here. It is meaningful to be here. When we come here, God, it's not just a, a duty that we do, but as we look to our left and to our right, we find all the other pilgrims of the area who came into this place today to worship your name. Thank you for the story that is the church. Thank you for the story that happens again and again, that when she starts to go astray, you always come back and correct. You always lead, you always heal. And thank you that she will be victorious in the end. Lord, we pray for your immense and powerful health to be on this house of worship, on Living Way Fellowship the heritage we have, the lives that were changed in, in this space, in the old campus we used to have. The names and faces that um, very few of us can even remember from the days when it all began. 
Lord, I pray that we could feel uh, a deep connectedness. God, help us to recognize our heritage. Would you bless this church, God? We pray for those that uh, they too are kind of like the promised land, holy and protected, though they haven't been awakened yet. Lord, those people in our city that belong to Living Way that aren't here yet, Lord, would you woo them home? Would you help us be creative in how to find them? Would you help us be compassionate that we would be open doors? That we could gather in the fullness that you have called us to out of this community to praise in your name. And thank you for the privilege of being able to do this today together. Transform us and move us, Lord. Help us remember how great it is to gather in the house of the Lord in your name. We pray. Amen.